Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, Welcome, oddities, to another oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. So glad to be back with you today. Been working on this episode for a while, kind of trying to get my notes straight. I ended up consulting several books, and so that's why it took me a lot longer than I had initially hoped for. I wanted to get this out a few weeks ago, but we're just going to give it a go here and see if we can put everything together in a coherent way. We're going to be talking about the Cold War Era Congress for Cultural Freedom. Now, this is a very interesting group that I think we can learn a lot from, and I think it will kind of open up probably a lot of things that are going on in modern times, especially when it comes to government working with foundations, because that's how this group was funded mostly. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background about the Congress for Cultural Freedom And we're going to hear some clips from author Francis Stoner Saunders, who has written a great book about it. But first, we're going to read an intro to another book about the Congress for Cultural Freedom. It's called The CIA and the Congress for Cultural Freedom in the Early Cold War by Sarah Miller Harris. We're just going to read the intro here. She says, for nearly two decades during the early Cold War, The CIA secretly sponsored some of the world's most feted writers, philosophers, and scientists as part of a campaign to prevent communism from regaining a foothold in Western Europe and from spreading to Asia. By backing the Congress for Cultural Freedom, the CIA subsidized dozens of prominent magazines, global congresses, annual seminars, and artistic festivals. When this operation... Get the name of this operation, QK Opera, became public in 1967. 
it ignited one of the most damaging scandals in CIA history. Ever since then, many accounts have argued that the CIA manipulated a generation of intellectuals into lending their names to pro-American, anti-communist ideas. Others have suggested a more nuanced picture of the relationship between the Congress and the CIA, with intellectuals sometimes resisting the CIA's bidding. Very few accounts, however, have examined the man who held the Congress together, That was one Michael Jocelyn, the Congress's indispensable manager and secretly a longtime CIA agent. Now, this book in particular, she says, fills that gap. So I think that, uh, yeah, this is a pretty good book, too. But um, we're going to read a little bit more from this one, and then we're going to get to some other stuff here. But Jocelyn definitely is the main guy kind of holding all the pieces together. Now, I want to continue to give you a little bit of information, and this is the preface from a book called The Liberal Conspiracy, which is also about the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Now, this book is by, I believe, Peter Coleman, and he's quite pro-Congress for Cultural Freedom, which is fine, but I just wanted to point that out. Now, his intro goes like this. In June 1950, as the Cold War grew more intense in Europe and North Korea invaded South Korea in Asia, more than 100 European and American writers and intellectuals met in Berlin and established the Congress for Cultural Freedom to resist the Kremlin's sustained assault on liberal democratic values. In the 1950s, the Congress spread throughout the world, successfully creating magazines, publishing books, conducting conferences, festivals, organizing protests, establishing a network of affiliated national committees, and fostering personal contacts. The Congress continued into the 60s, broadening its focus to lay the basis of an international community of liberal and democratic intellectuals. It was America's principal attempt to win over the world's intellectuals to the liberal democratic cause. Then, in an era of the Vietnam War... A new left, a new conservatism, and an emerging detente, the Congress began to falter in its purpose. It finally dissolved in 1967 amid disclosures of its funding by the CIA. Its successor organization, the International Association for Cultural Freedom, never recaptured or equaled the achievements of the earlier Congress. He says, My own interest in this story began in 1967 at the time of the worldwide publicity about the disclosures. I was a member of the Australian outpost of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, the Australian Association for Cultural Freedom, and I had just been appointed editor of the Australian magazine associated with the Congress called The Quadrant. The Congress, now under attack, had for some years commanded my loyalty and through its magazines had helped form my view of the world. When interviewed by reporters about the disclosures, I said firmly and frankly, as did most but not all people in positions similar to mine around the world, that none of our editorial decisions had ever been influenced by outside pressures, least of all by any American agencies such as the CIA. I added, with what I now know, in the light of a greater awareness of the issues regarding as unfeeling sanctimony, that anyone involved in or knowing of CIA funding should resign from the Congress or be dismissed. But he goes on, but a doubt lingered. 
Did, for example, the idea for the Congress's massive cultural festival in Paris in 1952 emerge from liberations among Congress intellectuals, or rather from a concern of the U.S. administration at the time that America was losing the battle of the festivals? Were all of the Congress's varied initiatives in Latin America and Africa in the 1960s spontaneous Congress ideas, or were some of them produced by the activist mentality of the Kennedy administration? Were the Congress's forlorn attempts to reach Soviet writers entirely an expression of solidarity, or did the CIA also have an interest? I decided to inquire into the details of the programs of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, its magazines and national committees, its conferences and its festivals, its protests and campaigns, to see if I could settle the doubts one way or another. I wish, after 10 years of research, that I had the final and complete story of the CIA's role. Some of its former officers, William Colby, Lyman B. Kirkpatrick, Jr., Thomas Wardell Brady, and others have written briefly about the CIA's funding of the Congress. Others, such as Cord Meyer, Jr., have written in some detail of the CIA's arrangements with the U.S. National Students Association. But when I applied to the CIA under the Freedom of Information Act for records covering the years 1952-1967, all I received was a clipping from the New York Times published after the dissolution of the Congress and the statement, no other records responsive to your request were located. Given this absence of cooperation, I have no significant news from official sources about the extent of the CIA's involvement but I do claim that I have found out more than anyone I have interviewed about the Congress's various activities around the world, about the plans and intentions of the people associated with it, and about their knowledge of any secret funding. So this is a pretty good book. It goes on a little bit more, but he is basically pro-Congress because he worked for them. And I think that he is kind of in the, you know, in the back of his mind, he's trying to kind of push the... Uh, idea that none of the people knew that they were being funded by the CIA, or at least most of them. And I believe that that is false. And really, um, Saunders makes that point in her book that uh, quite a few people did know. Some, I'm sure, did not, but some definitely did. Some big names, too, that we'll get into later on. Ironically, you know, it was known from the very beginning, the CIA's main cultural front, if you like, the, the, the nucleus, if you like, around which all these programs were attached and all this intelligentsia was sort of drawn into this great project was called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And that was set up in Berlin. It was launched in Berlin in 1950 and it had its head offices in Paris, but it had offices in every continent. I mean, you know, and, and lots of in, uh, personnel and it published magazines, it organized concerts and art exhibitions. It was a very, very significant organization, unparalleled in its time and since. And that was known about from the very beginning by the Soviets. They published uh, their monad in Germany, uh, Encounter in Britain, the most famous one perhaps. Very famously, yeah. Preuves in France, Tempo, Tempo Presente in Italy, yeah. and Quadernos in Latin America. Well, Quadernos, yeah. but they also had uh, Mundo Nuevo, which is a less mm. known magazine. They had, um, they had a, uh, also like a press service, a kind of a syndication service for all of these magazines. They had one that concentrated... Um, particularly in Latin America. And alongside this were also 
Um, other magazines like Combate, um, Vision, uh, El Mundo en Español, these were all adjuncts, if you like, to this, and they were mm. all directly paid for and managed by the CIA. Uh, of course, the, the big names of the intellectual world in post-war France, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, mm. Simone de Beauvoir, Albert Camus, Raymond Aron, André Moreau, yeah. did they all participate? Or only no, well, listen, Sartre and de Beauvoir were, were the enemy, if you like. The, the whole focus, if they you like. They tried to get them. I mean, someone said to me when I was doing this book, listen, the enemy wasn't really Moscow, it was Paris for the mm -hmm. Americans. It was Paris, it was Sartre, de Beauvoir. They were absolutely obsessed with the anti-Americanism, the negative stereotypes that they felt these people were. This was very galling for Americans. But American they did citizens. get uh, Malraux to cooperate. They got they Malraux, get they got... Raymond uh, Aron to cooperate. Aron, later Camus when he recanted very belatedly. And so they... They had, yeah, they kind of, I would say, quite effectively split the American, inter uh, the, the French sort of, you know, left bank um, from, from the Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir were, were, they were never published in these magazines, they were regularly attacked. And then they would draw in other French intellectuals who might be on the left, who might not necessarily be passionate about the big America. The question is, did they know about it? Did they know that they were being financed uh, by the CIA? Well, who knew, who didn't know is a whole big question. For many of them, they had no idea that the CIA was behind the institutions or the magazines or the journals or the art exhibit, you know, that they had been involved in or that they mm. were working for. You have a quote from Richard Crossman, you know, an intelligence man, mm. British, and then he says that uh, the way to carry out good propaganda is never to appear to be carried out at all. Yeah. The problem is, is it goes at all sorts of different sort of philosophical and practical levels. The problem of association with the CIA was recognized by the CIA itself. It didn't declare its support openly because it knew it would be rejected if it was offered openly. So it hid behind foundations and France and organizations. It hid, it disguised they its investment. They knew better than anybody that they were poisonous. Of course. The moment the association is revealed and there were some problems with the tradecraft of this, the funding mechanisms were pretty simple and once people got onto it they could kind of put the wires together at the back of the radio and see where it led. The problem is, is that once the association is revealed, the whole operation is tainted. How do you explain their idea to support abstract expressionism? Why would they support Jackson Pollock painting those things, throwing the paint on the floor? And uh, Mark Rutko yeah. and other. It's Why brilliant. would they expect that form? It's brilliant. I mean, this is one of the things that, that got me into this subject in the first place. What were beached up, you know, alcoholized, brilliant leftists doing getting into bed with the CIA? Doesn't have only an aesthetic context, however, it has a political one too. And there's no question that uh, a, a political cartel, which included our friend Nelson Rockefeller, the Museum of Modern Art, the CIA created a very, very powerful um, sort of atmosphere and climate, financial as well, around abstract expression and, uh, expressionism to assert its merits at a time when it was being decried by the Soviets and at a time when within America itself it was being uh, slandered as a kind of pro-communist. This is the period in the, in the you know, mid to late 50s when abstract expressionism is beginning to emerge in the CIA's mind as a very useful advertisement for freedom. Freedom. Freedom of expression. What's freer than, you know, this random knot of lines thrown across the floor? You know, it's fantastic. Freewheeling democracy. Not what the government tells you to paint. Free enterprise painting. That's what Nelson uh, Rockefeller, Rockefeller calls it. Free enterprise painting. I mean, it's fantastic. We can make sense of the CIA supporting right-wingers like Irving Kristol, the philosopher Isaiah Berlin. But why would they support the other side? Why would they support Arendt? Why would they support Mary well, because, McCarthy? as I say, the, the non-communist left, the non-communist left was, was um, the perfect place to go 
an important place to go and to preach the value, if you like, of American democracy and of, the, of American foreign policy. Why did they go to Orwell and say, okay, we want to take uh, Animal Farm and 1984, both very uh, polemical tracks against all forms of state control, all kinds of governments trying to assert control over its systems. And they say, we'll take this and we'll, we'll from an, you know, an old socialist and we'll do something with it. Why? Okay, what they do is at the end is that they eliminate the distinctions that, that uh, Orwell is making, the comparisons he makes, the equivalent, if you like, between rotten communism and extreme and corrupt capitalism. Those differences are just sort of, you know, uh, or similarities, if you like, are blurred out so that what you have then is, is a tract against the evil Soviet empire. So what they're doing is they're very slightly modifying, and very convincingly, to a high standard, modifying the original argument, or the aim, if you like, of the original argument, to make a distinction between American values and Soviet or communist values. So they changed the ending of the stories. They changed they the ending movies. both of Animal Farm and of 1984, as I say, to, to, um, to eliminate the, the moral equivalence that's in the original text between the two different forms of oppression or, or of totalitarianism or of state control in order to make it a peculiarly and distinctly communist, uh, you know, kind of control. Now, I want to say real quick, I know that was a long clip, but she mentioned Nelson Rockefeller and the Museum of Modern Art, and I can't remember if it was Saunders' book or not, but one of the books talks about how it was Nelson's mother who started the Museum of Modern Art, and it allowed them right away to push this art, this government corporate-approved art on the public. And I've been to Washington, D.C., not lately, but in the last few years, we've went a couple of times, and I've taken the kids, and, and uh, I remember my son and I walked into one of these rooms with all this expressionist art one time, and there were pictures of this old fat man naked, just these weird backgrounds, but all this crap art that you know was inspired by Jackson Pollock and the likes, just with smeared paint everywhere, and then there's all kinds of art, too, that looks like it's been painted by a three-year-old. Some of it's just not even art at all. It's just all one color. You know, it's just this ridiculous government, corporate-sponsored art that they've pushed on people. And this idea came right out of the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And one of the authors had mentioned, too, that one of the reasons they push this kind of expressionist art is because some of the artists at the time were making art that was kind of I would say maybe calling attention to things they didn't like that was representing things they didn't like, maybe representing the push against big corporations and banks and different things like that. And so they were able to kind of make this type of art kind of popular in the public. This art really didn't say anything, and it didn't convey any of these deep meanings like some of the popular artists at the time. And so they were able to kind of infiltrate art and take it over and make it mean much of nothing like they have done so much art, music, movies, different things like that. Now, speaking of George Orwell, she mentioned how they changed the ending of Animal Farm in 1984. And a few years ago, I learned that George Orwell, when he died, had security clearance with MI6. And I realized recently that he was absolutely a propagandist for the BBC and MI6 and the British government during World War II. Now, that doesn't take away from the brilliance of 1984 and the brilliance of Animal Farm and perhaps some of his other writings. I'm not familiar with the others, but 
He absolutely was an official propagandist, and you can actually see some of that footage and uh, some of his speeches and whatnot. Very interesting guy, and I think it just goes to show that even though you really admire an artist, an author, a singer, whatever, that does not mean that they are not on the corporate government dole and are working for reasons other than just to express themselves. So I think it's important to remember that. Also remember George Orwell was a Fabian socialist early on. And, uh, you know, he never left that socialist mindset. And so I think that uh, a lot of people forget that. Always the Democrats, they say that 1984 is about the Republicans. And the Republicans say it's about the Democrats. But it's really about all forms of totalitarianism. All writers are vain, selfish, and lazy. And at the bottom of their motives, there lies a mystery. And so you have no control over what you write. Writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout with some painful illness. One would never undertake such a thing if one were not driven by some demon one can neither resist nor fully comprehend. Their, their support of anti-communists, and they're clearly anti-communists at the time, Arthur Kessler, who wrote uh, his very anti-communist book, Darkness at Noon, the CIA supported it by buying 50,000 copies. But then apparently the, the Soviets got involved in it. No, it's a brilliant story because the CIA, this would be very common for the CIA to do this. What they would do is buy up a lot of copies of a magazine or of a book and then, you know, put it out. And 50,000 copies is a huge, huge amount. Nowadays. And very, and very nice for Arthur Kessler because he's getting his royalties. At the same time, bizarrely, the French Communist Party, under orders from Moscow, are told to buy up all copies of Darkness at Noon in France and just get it off the shelves, so they do. So Kessler finds himself being indefinitely enriched by both the CIA and by <laughs> <That's extraordinary>. the Soviet <laughs> Union. Just a little note, too, that I don't think it mentions much in the books there in the beginnings. This group was kind of spawned out of another group that was created by secular humanist and Fabian, John Dewey, the father of education, which was formed in 1939, and it was called the American Committee for Cultural Freedom, which even continued on after the Congress for Cultural Freedom was created. Now, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was officially created June 26, 1950, and dissolved in 1979 under the International Association for Cultural Freedom, but Saunders proves in her book that they actually didn't stop doing what they'd been doing all along. Now, let's see here. This is just something that I've written. We've kind of gone over some of this, but I will just put it out there anyway. The CIA wanted to influence other parts of the world in order to combat the growing sentiment towards communism, focusing especially on artists, playwrights, musicians, as well as intellectuals all of whom they knew would go on to influence many others. Many members were former Communist Party members, Trotskyites specifically, who turned against Stalin and his totalitarian measures. Now, most were not pro-American by any means. They were generally democratic socialist types, or what became known as far as people like Irvin Kristol are concerned, neocons. Like modern libs, they believed America was backwards and lacked culture. Quite a few top members were Eastern European Jews, which Saunders or none of the other books really cover, and most of the main ones were indeed Jewish. 
Obviously, they had no intentions of spreading American rugged, individualistic, or patriotic ideology. They were all about democracy, dumbocracy, a.k.a. the liberal world order, or the empire, as I call it. So, just a little something there that I wanted to put out there. That's kind of what I was thinking after I read these books. Now, Michael Jocelyn was their main executive director. He was a CIA man. We said he is the guy who held it all together. Uh, He was born from a Jewish family in Estonia. Now, I never even thought for a minute that I would be able to link this subject to those we don't speak of, but like so many other subjects, everything just leads right back there. So, forgive me, we're going to cover this a little bit. We're not going to mention all of those who were members that happened to also be members of those we don't speak of, but we will mention a few. Author Kessler, the famous author of the 13 tribes, of course, he was Jewish. Uh, He also worked as an assistant to the Zionist revisionist Vladimir Ziev Jabotinsky, who we've talked about in detail in the Those We Don't Speak Of episodes. Uh, You know, Netanyahu's father was a secretary for him. He was the, uh, you know, the revisionist Zionists who believed in taking everything by force, and they did. They were the ones who were bombing the Brits after they helped them to regain some of the Palestinian land. You may remember the Aragoon. They were one of the terrorist organizations that Jabotinsky was involved with. Now, author Kessler also had previously worked for communist propaganda mastermind Willy Munzenberg. Now, Munzenberg was said to be kind of like um, an Edward Bernays before Bernays even, but never really, I think, wrote books to the extent Bernays did. But he ran media campaigns, and he covered the propaganda for the communists, for the Bolsheviks. Now, two other members also worked for Munzenberg, the journalist Louis Fischer and Italian communist Ignazio Salone, They were also members of this Congress for Cultural Freedom. And Willie Munzenberg, one of his famous quotes is, we must organize the intellectuals and use them to make Western civilization stink. Now, Willie Munzenberg's greatest innovation was to pioneer the use of front organizations, ostensibly independent organizations for charitable or political purposes, to enlist innocents to the cause Their press releases and petitions were deliberately vague to capture the widest possible coalition of signatories, and their activities and fundraising were dedicated to winning adherence to communism in the West. Munzenberg began by transforming the Volga famine from a devastating indictment of mismanaged central planning into a worldwide relief campaign spearheaded by a famine relief organization that branded itself as a way for outsiders to contribute to the Soviet experiment. He raised millions, but little actually went to famine relief. And we'll probably do a show one of these days, Lord willing, about Willy Munzenberg, because he was a major player who really doesn't get talked about that much. Also another member of the Congress, These are all, those we don't speak of, members here, Raymond Aaron, Ivan Katz, Melvin J. Lasky, who was the son of Jewish immigrants from Poland. Uh, He is a major player. Uh, Author Schlesinger Jr., also a major player. Saul Stein, Walter Ziev Lacour, 
He was a major player and also a writer of many books on Zionism and different things like that. He actually, I believe, was their agent in Israel for a while. Uh, Sidney Hook also, those we don't speak of. Uh, Michael Polania was another one. Alexander Weisberg Sibulski was another. We mentioned Irvin Kristol, who's probably the most well-known in America. He was the editor of the Encounter magazine, probably their most popular magazine. And he is father, of course, to Bill Crystal. Irving Crystal, as far as I can tell, was the one that came up with the term neocon or neoconservative, as he's written books about it. Uh, Daniel Bell was another. George Lichheim was another. Uh, his work appeared in the Palestine Post. Commentary Magazine, Partisan Review, Dissent, The New Leader, Encounter, The Times Literary Supplement, and The New York Review of Books. He also translated Gershom Sholem's Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism. Uh, He actually committed suicide in Hampstead in 1973. Leopoldo Lebeds was another. Nicholas Nabokov, Russian Jew, major player, very uh, good friends with Jocelyn. The writer Hannah Arendt, who many people probably know in this audience. People like Arthur Kessler actually helped her write some of her books. Uh, Irving Brown. Now, I'm not sure. I believe he was also a member of those we don't speak of. The European representative of the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, whose modest title concealed a political role of huge importance in post-war Europe. Through Brown, vast sums of American taxpayer money and Marshall Plan counterpart funds were being pumped into covert operations. Now, I don't think Frank Wisner was those we don't speak of, but let's see here. Frank Wisner anchored Irving Brown to the Congress, Congress for Cultural Freedom, by appointing him a key member of the steering committee, which had been formed shortly after the Berlin Conference. More helpful than all of Kessler's and Salone's put together. Brown was once described as a one-man OSS. The OSS was, of course, the precursor to the CIA. And a character out of an E. Phillips Oppenheim novel. He worked for J. Lovestone, who was another, those we don't speak of, and a Congress member, a former Comintern delegate who now headed up the CIA's secret liaison with the American labor movement. So from communists to working for the CIA and the labor movement, Irving Brown was extremely adroit in pursuing objectives by clandestine routes and had been shortlisted by George Kennan in 1948 as a candidate to head up the OPC, the job that eventually fell to Frank Wisner, CIA. I don't believe I ever saw Irving Brown with a nickel that didn't belong to the CIA, remembered Tom Braden, who is soon to take over QK Opera. That's the Congress for Cultural Freedom. He would say it was from the labor unions. It was a good cover. Brown was the paymaster, but he enjoyed participation in the planning of operations. He was an intelligent guy with a wide acquaintanceship. Uh, Now, it says, The Office of Strategic Services, World War II spy agency, turned to Jewish labor in the U.S. for contacts among European socialists. And in 1944, the above-mentioned J. Lovestone, Lovestone, the surname being a literal translation of Liebstein, uh, 
of the ILGWU set up the AFL's Free Trade Union Committee. According to Encyclopedia Judaica, during the subsequent Cold War years, Lovestone worked closely with the CIA, and when the AFL and the CIO merged, Lovestone continued his activities within the merged labor movement's Department of International Affairs and vigorously supported military intervention in Vietnam. His hawkishness did not stop there. Lovestone, his protege Irving Brown, and Tom Kahn, Brown's successor, became obsessive promoters of Israel. The AFL-CIO is the world's largest non-Jewish holder of Israeli bonds. Did you know that, guys? So that's just a few of the members of the Congress for Cultural Freedom who were also members of those we don't speak of. There's also a few more, like Junkie Fleischman, and I believe Nisim Ezekiel was also those we don't speak of. Maines Sperber was another one. Uh, Henry Richard, I don't know if this is Krigier or Krigier, but he was a Polish Jew and a journalist and a publisher. I don't believe Kordmeier was Jewish, but uh, there was also Eugene Kogan, who was very close to the Congress for Cultural Freedom. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting, and uh, you know, it just seems like wherever you find these influential groups, you also find quite a few members from those we don't speak of. So some more close members of the Congress was Lord Bertrand Russell, who was a governor of the Fabian Socialist London School of Economics and longtime professor there. Uh, let's see. I mentioned John Dewey, father of American education, who also worked with the Congress for Cultural Freedom at certain times. You know, Dewey also helped found the League for Industrial Democracy, which was the sister organization of the English Fabian Socialist Society. So there's that. Uh, another guy, honorary chairman, Benedetto Croce, Carl Jaspers, Jacques Maritain, Page 48 here of Stoner's book, it says, The CIA's methods of providing funds was indirect through actual foundations or ones created for the purpose. For the Congress, one of the principal conduits was the Farfield Foundation, which was incorporated on January 30, 1952, as a nonprofit organization in the state of New York. Its brochure stated, it was formed by a group of private American individuals who are interested in preserving the cultural heritage of free world and encouraging the constant expansion and interchange of knowledge in the fields of arts, letters, and sciences. To this end, the foundation extends financial aid groups and organizations engaged in the interpreting and publicizing of recent cultural advances and to groups whose enterprises in literary, artistic, or scientific fields may serve as worthy contributions to the progress of culture. The Foundation offers assistance to organizations whose programs tend to strengthen the cultural ties which bind the nations of the world and to reveal all peoples who share the traditions of free culture the inherent dangers which totalitarianism poses to intellectual and cultural development. The Foundation dedicates its efforts to the hopes that under modern conditions, which are bringing about closer and closer relations among the nations, 
there may be a new growth of free and creative activity in every artistic and scientific field. Boy, that sounds great, right? Well, this Farfield Foundation wasn't a real foundation at all. It was just a conduit to funnel money. It was just a front group, and that's all it was. Now, another guy who we mentioned a few minutes ago, Junkie Fleischman, I don't know if that was his real name or not, but that's what they call him in the book every time. He was a wealthy patron of the arts, it says here, and was also president of the Farfield Foundation, one of the conduits for channeling CIA funds to the Congress for Cultural Freedom. McDonald, a prominent journalist and editor, was for a time associate editor of the Congress's London-based magazine Encounter. That was from the Department of Special Collections, the University of Chicago Library. The Farfield Foundation was by no means exceptional in its incestuous character. This was the nature of power in America at the time. The system of private patronage was the preeminent model of how small, homogenous groups came to defend America, and by definition, their own interests. I would say mostly their own interests. And by American interests, they mostly mean the empire. Serving at the top of the pile was every self-respecting wasp's ambition. But was it really when we just went over how many of those we don't speak of were the main members of this group? I think that's interesting that none of these books talk about that. The prize was a trusteeship on either the Ford Foundation or the Rockefeller Foundation, both of which were conscious instruments of covert U.S. foreign policy with directors and officers who were closely connected or even themselves members of American intelligence. Now, I've got a whole whole section on the Ford Foundation and their connections to the Congress for Cultural Freedom. I don't know if I want to read that this time or not, but we'll go on a little bit farther before I make up my mind. Now, also connected to the Congress was Henry Luce, who was a Skull and Bones member. Uh, He was the creator of Time magazine. Uh, I think he was uh, also one of the directors of the Council on Foreign Relations at one time. Then Avril Harriman was the same, also another Skull and Bones member. Uh, John Hay Whitney, I'm not sure if Whitney was a Skull and Bones member, but certainly his family had been. Let's see here. There is quite an incredible spread of relationships. You don't need to manipulate Time magazine, for example, because there are central intelligence agency people at the management level. Now, that was William B. Bader, former CIA intelligence officer, briefing members of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And that was a quote from the CIA and the media by Carl Bernstein. Uh, William Sloan Coffin was another Skull and Bones member turned intel who was hired by Alan Dulles, who worked under Angleton. Uh, Dulles and Angleton, of course, worked for the CIA And when OSS turned to CIA, then the Congress came about, and so all these guys were connected. Uh, Dean Acheson was another one who was connected, also Skull and Bones. Uh, William Paley, the the founder of CBS, the eye on the news, he was also connected. Guess who else? Tolstoy was connected. Uh, There's a couple of uh, Rothschilds, a couple of Warburgs, who we'll get into later. So speaking of the Fabian Society, let's look at the Fabian Society because we know the Fabians created the Labor Party in Britain and still are connected to it closely today. Lasky, 
moved in Counter Magazine closer to the Hugh Gates goal wing of the British Labour Party. After the Socialists suffered their third executive electoral defeat in 1959, Encounter Magazine, one of the principal publications of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which C.A.R. Crossland developed his revisionist and socialist democratic Keynesian program of which radical reform and the left encounter October 1960 was typical. He called for higher taxation of the wealthy, increased welfare, an expanded public sector, the democratization of public schools, protection of the consumer, conservation of the countryside, more technological education, liberalized laws on homosexuality, abolition of capital punishment, joining the European economic community, world government, racial equality, and support for NATO. That's kind of funny, right? That shouldn't go together, but it does, and it did. And in 1979, also in Encounter magazine, Colin Welch could write off the shabby decaying slum, The Haunted House, which Crossland's program successfully carried out, had made of England, but in the early 1960s, it seemed to be many, including most of the Encounter Circle, an enlivening progressive vision. Again, Gatescale has been very glad of our support, Lasky wrote to John Hunt in 1960, and has written to me personally to express that gratitude. He also referred to an enormous friendly feeling for Encounter magazine in the center and the right wing of the British Labour Party. This friendly feeling continued through the debates on nationalization, unilateralism, decolonization, science policy, censorship reform, and entry to the common market, which Gatescale opposed and Encounter supported. In 1963, the special issue with Arthur Kessler as guest editor, called Suicide of a Nation, could also be read as a call for a change of government to help put an end to British sickness. When Harold Wilson formed his Labor government in 1964, his ministry included a half a dozen regular Encounter magazine writers, and Lord C.P. Snow was appointed Parliamentary Secretary in the Ministry of Technology. Now that was from The Liberal Conspiracy by Peter Coleman. Your research in your book points out that the, the American skills in political propaganda were actually developed during World War II when they were fighting the, the, the Nazis. So what's so different about using the same skills to fight the communists? Well, nothing. And you're right to point out that these, these were skills developed during the Second World War. But interestingly, they were skills inherited, if you like, from a group of people who before that, in the 30s, had been working on propaganda, but for the communists. So what the Americans did during the Second World War and then continued into the Cold War was they recruited a lot of former communists who had seen the light, who had decided that both Marxism and communism as theories and practice were, were empty and morally bankrupt. And so they had moved, not necessarily to the right, but they had moved to a position known in State Department circles immediately after the war as the non-communist left. What, what period are we talking about here? You know, the CIA was created in 1947, but... Yeah, CIA is 1947, but it, but it um, inherits very much a lot of the same personnel and the same structures and methods as its wartime predecessor, which was known as the OSS. Um, and the OSS was the wartime intelligence agency that concentrated on a lot of daring do, as you can imagine, you know, flying in spies behind enemy lines. And, you know, in France, in occupied France in particular, the resistance was, 
was organized around, you know, communist cells. So you had the Americans trying to defeat the Nazis and Vichy France by using the communists. What you have after the end of the war is, is the reinvention, if you like, of this intelligence agency as the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, designed principally to avoid another Pearl Harbor. This is the key to the CIA, is that it's set up very reluctantly by Truman, or under his watch. Unfortunately, very soon after its creation, its, its main um, proponent and advocates including very early on um, Alan Dulles, the famous wartime spymaster who then became a director of CIA, was to give it a very, very broad range of capability, a lot of which was off budget, off the record, unaccountable pretty much to anybody. And this gave them the opportunity to indulge not just in the coordination of intelligence, but in covert action, in destabilizing governments, in getting rid of elect to, you know, democratically elected leaders, all the things we know, all of the terrible stereotypes of CIA behavior were incorporated very early on, enshrined within its sort of legal brief. But then your focus is their action within the cultural field, you know, the cultural war, the cultural camp. Yeah, because of the, the yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in that, in that area, they, they were very broad in their in, in very, very. I mean, my experience, you know, when I started researching this story, I thought, you know, of the CIA man. I had inherited this idea of the CIA man as this kind of, you know, brutish, rogue elephant type, you know, very daring and charming and dashing, but not as a kind of intellectual. intellectual. And in fact, the truth is that the CIA was, um, from its inception, was kind of like a campus. You know, there were people running around in their tweed suits, smoking pipes, who would do very well as professors at high table in, in you know, the great uh, universities, Ivy League universities of America, or indeed Oxford and Cambridge. And indeed, often they were that as well. You, you write that they, they have the, the, to finance the publication of uh, more than a thousand books, uh, including Dr. Zhivago, yeah. Boris Pasternak, yeah. and uh, The New Class by the Yugoslav. And, and you know, the translations of T.S. Eliot, uh, Chekhov, they had, you know, there was an imprint publishing Chekhov that was run by the CIA. Why would the CIA be publishing these things? What they were trying to do was talk directly to a, a, a Western mind and intellect that was anti-communist, but not necessarily pro-American. And they wanted to demonstrate that everything that the Soviets said about America, that it was culturally barren and unsophisticated, had a poor civil rights record, didn't understand high art, or that none of this was true. They wanted to build a bridgehead, if you like, a sort of cultural NATO to support American foreign policy, the Pax Americana, to convince people essentially that everything America did was right and everything the Soviets did was wrong. But they were very subtle about it. They were not doing this in, in sort of e either in preaching to the converted or looking for very big audiences. They were looking for a small elite audience who in turn, according to the trickle-down theory, could influence a readership, a wider public, policymakers, people of influence within government who might actually then change policy to accommodate the American proposition. But at the same time, they dealt with things like films, like Hollywood. What yeah, are they doing not, Hollywood? I mean, they did, but not so much. What's interesting is that Hollywood produces at this time its kind of own internal um, psychological warfare operation. S some of it is, is organized by and managed by the CIA, and very typically they take... Um, Orwell's Animal Farm in 1984. They acquire the rights to both of those books. Orwell, by this time, has died, although he's already started a rather curious collaboration just before his death with a British 
equivalent, if you like, of the CIA's cultural warfare operation or department. He's working with British intelligence, supplying names of people who he thinks are untrustworthy um, to be considered as cultural propagandists. So it's said of Orwell that by somebody, you know, that it was a blessing that he died when he did, before he could move further to the right. However, he didn't give the film rights to his the CIA. Widow his widow did. His widow did, amusingly, in the case of Animal Farm. She, she gave the film rights directly over to two CIA agents who were sent to England to negotiate. And uh, she said she would do so happily, but on the one condition that she met Clark Gable. So they organized a meeting for her with Clark Gable, the intimate details of which are, we not, don't know. are not available to historians. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons they were interested in getting into Hollywood and in supporting a, a project known as Militant Liberty, which is a fantastic Cold War concept, if you think about it. You know, all this stuff of fighting for the truth, the rhetoric of truth, you know, the war of freedom. It's hilariously sort of oxymoronic in one sense. I mean, these things either establish themselves organically as, as natural rights of man, freedom, independence, democracy, or they get bought up and managed by the CIA. Sounds very contemporary. It sounds very contemporary. There are lots of, you know, rather alarming we'll contemporary sort of evocations. But... Uh, this, th this thing that the CIA was doing, you know, from what you described, this governments have always done that. Even in the case of Latin America, for instance, in the 40s, the U.S. government created what they call the good neighbor policy, mm -hmm. and part of that was carried out by Nelson Rockefeller. Rockefeller was then very closely uh, involved as, as a private individual with the CIA in similar operations, particularly for Latin America, after the war. So the CIA uh, has a very good sort of system, if you like, of, of subcontracting out to private individuals and institutions. And one of the reasons that it's been possible for me to put together this story and will be possible for future researchers, particularly in the area of Latin America, is that whilst the CIA itself is very reluctant to give out uh, primary evidence in the form of documentation, my efforts through the Freedom of Information Act, like most people's, were unsuccessful. The great benefit of the fact that they worked in the private sector, if you like, is that, is that you can find a lot of this material directly relating to these CIA <coughs> organizations and and methods in the private sector. So if you look in the archives, you find them. Nelson Rockefeller's archives are a very good example. They give you a very distinct picture of what his um, attempts were and how they were managed to sort of propagandize for, you know, for the American, for, for a friendly acceptance, if you like, <coughs> of American ideas in Latin America. Yeah, in fact, your book mentions that uh, uh, not only Rockefeller was in charge of intelligence in Latin America during the war and uh, spying, uh, but he had a man in Latin America. His man was uh, a Colonel J.C. King, mm. I never heard of, who later became chief of clandestine operations for the CIA. Well, that's so, why you never heard of him. So <laughs> I mean, you know. he was, he left Brazil as a spy and then started to destabilize countries and overthrow governments in the hemisphere. Yeah, I mean, the crucial thing to remember in all this, you know, these were the same people, let's not forget, who were also, and, and I mean as individuals, not just as a group, also organizing the overthrow of democratically elected governments, who were organizing the Bear Pigs operation, who were organizing mind control programs using LSD, who were, listen, we know the kind of, the sin list, if you like, of the CIA and its, and its illegal, and when they got home, activity. they would read... Yeah, listen, they go home and they have, you know, abstract expressionism on the walls and they were reading, you know, T.S. Eliot. James Jesus Angleton, the famous chief of black operations, if you like, for the CIA, was at the same time the editor of a magazine called Furiosa, which was a very high-level intellectual literary magazine, which had Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot on the masthead, you know, pretty much every issue. Now, this is from the Democracy Makers. 
Occupying pivotal positions at the intersections of academia, NGOs, international institutions, and activist movements, such as individual actors, are quite literally double agents. Rather, these double agents practice duplicity without deceit. A false consciousness allows them to perform dual roles and straddle different arenas of engagement. In fact, it is their very integrity and genuine commitment to the democratic ideas that turns activists into double agents and makes them so well suited to the role. As civil society grassroots, non-state or NGO representatives, they enjoy the legitimacy required to represent and articulate the interests of civil society to power and police or constrain such events. Consequently, double agents occupy the best positions to make hegemonic institutions more sensitive to emancipatory claims, while at the same time disciplining or moderating NGOs and activists. In this respect, the democratization industry has systematized the previously disparate initiatives undertaken by liberal foundations, labor unions, and the Cold War intellectuals around journals like Encounter magazine. It occupies a new space of politics where knowledge, techniques, network ideas, and ideologies are traded and circulated. Hitherto, leftist or independent intellectuals and activists have been co-opted and incorporated into a discourse and, by extension, a political practice supportive of neoliberal corporate globalization. While he would no doubt disavow such an unfashionable formulation, Gilhot's analysis suggests that democracy makers perform a transmission belt function analogous to the Leninist conception of trade unions. All right, guys, that wraps up this edition of the Oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you so much for taking the time to check this information out. And we've just begun on this subject with the Congress for Cultural Freedom. It's such a big subject, and Saunders' book in general is huge. It's over 600 pages, so there's so much information there. And one of the things I want to delve into on the next episode about this is the information with the tax-exempt groups and how they went through these various groups and used them as front groups for funneling money, which still happens today. I think more so than we even realize. Now, I want to go ahead and thank my patrons. I want to thank Cole. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Crazy Breadman, for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, from the Daily Ruckus on AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Thank you, Ruckus, for being a producer of the show. Also, check out Ruckus's fine work on TNT Radio as well. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mark, from Housatonic Live. Check out all of Mark's fine work on YouTube, and you can find him at liveathousatonics.com. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you, John Brisson. Check out We've Read the Documents on Twitter, Library, Rumble. He's got some fantastic information on there. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Kilowatt. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Check out Jack's show on all your fine podcasting platforms as well as YouTube. And I'm going to be on there talking with him tonight, so look for that in the coming days. Now, thank you to AlternateCurrentRadio.com, my podcasting home. 
Please check out their flagship show, The Boiler Room, as well as I mentioned, The Daily Ruckus, and all their fine talk and music shows. Thank you also to FrenchRadioNetwork.com for posting up the oddcast. Cheers and blessings, guys. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. Hollywood started burning, fiery from the sky. Just started melting and rocks that started to fly. A fire surrounded the city, volcano rose from the ground. The yet began to spin apart and destroy the whole damn town. Springs of utter terror, weeping and gnashing of